Well, thank you. It is a privilege to, uh, to deliver God's word today, and I'm especially thankful that I can fill in uh, when Jeremy and Grant are doing the work at Presbytery, and they don't have to worry about this burden um, on this Sunday. So thank you. And again, we're looking in Galatians chapter 1, but b- before we read God's word, let's go to God and ask him to bless the reading and preaching of his word. Our God, we do come before you today, and we ask that you would open our ears and our hearts to understand what you have to say to us today through this letter to the Galatians that Paul wrote. And we ask that you would be glorified, that Jesus Christ would gain all the glory and honor today, and we ask in his name, amen. So again, we are reading Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Give ear to God's word. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. I don't know if any of you played sports or are playing sports, but you probably know that fundamentals are very important. They are of utmost importance in doing anything well, really. They're what allow sports teams to perform at the highest level week in and week out. Fundamentals are what allow musicians to play complicated scores or or musical uh, pieces with apparent ease. A solid grasp of the fundamentals is what sets apart the good from the great. They're the building blocks that allow for further development in a skill set. And when things don't go well, you always return to the fundamentals. The Christian faith has its own set of fundamentals. Christianity has its basics that must be understood, grasped, and built upon. And I would suggest to you today that the letter of Galatians, as we look at its introduction in our sermon today, is Paul's exposition of the fundamentals of the Christian faith. In this brief letter, Paul is calling this church, which he had visited, established sometime before, Back to the basics. He had heard that a certain group of people had infiltrated this church and begun to spread teaching that was contrary to what he himself had preached to them when he was with them. And the reason this is a call back to the fundamentals of the faith is because the air that Paul was fighting against was an air that struck to the core of the gospel. In fact, Paul says that this gospel is no gospel at all. And he goes so far to pronounce an anathema, a curse on anyone who promotes a different gospel than the gospel that he preached. So what are the fundamentals that Paul points to in these five verses? Well, I want to focus on two today. As with all passages of scripture, there's much more that we could look at more than we could look at in one setting. But we're just going to look at these two. The first is the fundamental of authority to speak God's word, which we find in verses 1 through 2. And then we'll look at the related fundamental of what the gospel is in verses 3 through 5. And if you want a pithy way to remember that, 
We can think of who to listen to and what to listen to. And introductions are kind of difficult sometimes, at least for me. I have a tendency, I don't know if you do as well, to gloss over them, to rush past them thinking we need to get to the meat of the text as quickly as we can. But introductions, especially in Paul's letters, are very helpful because frequently Paul will summarize what the rest of the letter is about in these few verses, and that's what he does for us today. So let's consider the first fundamental. As Paul comes right out of the gate with a short proclamation of his apostleship. He is an apostle not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. This is an abbreviated form of his calling, which is uh, recorded in the book of Acts, chapters 9 and 22 and 26. And it's the subject of the first two chapters of Galatians. In these two chapters, Paul stresses his independence from the already established apostolic circle. Paul received his calling directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. It was not an earthly authority that granted Paul his position. We just had our elections yesterday. It was not a democratically elected vote that gave Paul his commission to be a witness to the suffering and subsequent glory of Christ. No, it was from the risen Christ, the long-promised Old Testament Messiah, whom God the Father raised from the dead, that Paul received his authority. But while Paul's apostleship came independent of human mediation, at the same time it is in perfect harmony and agreement with the message delivered by the other apostles. That's what Paul demonstrates in chapter 2. After Paul had met with those who seemed to be influential, and there he's probably referring to uh, Peter and John most especially, he claims they added nothing to his message And instead, they extended the right hand of fellowship to him because they recognized that he had the authentic marks of an apostle to match their own. And this culmination of Paul standing as an apostle in some ways received a stamp of approval at the end of chapter 2 when he confronts Peter. And you remember in Galatians chapter 2, Paul confronts Peter because uh, Peter was not acting in accordance with the truth of the gospel. He would sometimes sit with the Gentiles, but then a certain group of Jews would come and Peter would withdraw. And Peter knew from his vision of the unclean animals in Acts chapter 10 that God had called the Gentiles clean. The barrier that had separated Jews and Gentiles had been broken down because Christ worked in himself to create one new man out of the two. But in this instance, Peter wasn't living in light of that truth, and that obscured the truth of the gospel, and it gave credence to the false teaching that Paul was opposing. And so Paul used the authority granted to him by Christ to correct Peter. And that gets to the heart of this first fundamental, what is an apostle? Who should you listen to? I'm sure you've been told what an apostle is. 
but fundamentals deserve to be reviewed on a regular basis so that they're seared in our minds and become the lens through which we view everything else. So like the Apostle Peter, it it doesn't trouble me to remind you again of what an apostle is. An apostle is an official representative for another who is authorized to speak with the authority of the person who sent him. And so what that means is that the level of authority and the purpose of sending are determined by the one who is doing the sending. And remember who is sending Paul. It is Jesus Christ and God the Father. The authority vested in Paul comes from the one who lived and died and rose again. It comes directly from the God-man who bought his own people with his precious blood and will change his people to be like him with glorious resurrected bodies. Paul's calling comes directly from Christ. There's no sort of mediation. There's no go-between for Paul's authority. And this is Paul's point. As one called, commissioned, and empowered as an apostle, there is no one who can claim supremacy over him. No one can contradict Paul's message without at the same time contradicting Christ's message, without contradicting Christ himself. So why is it important to be reminded of this fundamental of who to listen to? Well, it's because today, like in Paul's day, there are those who will claim authority that they don't actually possess. They will claim to be able to speak God's words, but they don't have the commissioning or the authority to do so. We can see that in some obvious ways. There's churches that will claim to be in direct secession to the apostles, or their their pastors will claim the title of apostle. But there are no more apostles like Peter and Paul. That office of apostle, we're told in scriptures in 1 Corinthians 3.10 and Ephesians 2.20, for example, it was for a time to lay a foundation for others to build on. And we also know that there's no more apostles like Peter and Paul because of the qualifications that the apostles looked for to replace Judas the betrayer. In Acts chapter 1, the replacement needed to be one who was with the disciples the whole time during Jesus' ministry. And specifically, he needed to be a witness of Christ's resurrection. And Paul is reminding the Galatians and us that he is a witness to the resurrected Christ. He was blinded by Christ, you remember, on the road to Damascus by the glory of Christ. And he was called by God who raised Jesus from the dead and commissioned and authorized to be a light to the Gentiles and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. Some groups don't claim to have the authority of the apostles, but in effect they set up their own authority by placing other books alongside the Bible as equal to the Bible. For example, the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses do just this. They have extra holy books. And what happens when you put another book on equal footing with the Bible 
In practice, what you do is you make that book your authority. And the Bible ceases to be the final foundation for you. And here may be good, a good time to distinguish between someone building on the foundation of the apostles and someone who is claiming authority that they don't actually possess. I heard some of the um, Sunday school class today who were going a little bit over the confession. I heard the confession mission mentioned several times. And in the Reformed tradition, we have creeds and confessions, and they help us understand the scripture. They summarize its teaching. So the Westminster Confession summarizes the teaching of Scripture, and that's what this church holds to. But it's not Scripture. It doesn't have the same authority as Scripture. But insofar as it summarizes Scripture, we can say that it has a derivative authority. And the Confession itself reminds us that the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is Scripture. And it continues... The supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men and private spirits are to be examined and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the scripture. The confession points us back to the authority of Scripture because the authority of Scripture is our firm foundation. The Scriptures are Christ's words to us through his authorized and commissioned witnesses. Those who have beheld his glories, his glory. And I might add that also includes the Old Testament prophets. Their words recorded for us in Scripture by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit are our final authority, and it's in Scripture's judgment that we must rest. So that is the first gospel fundamental. And that brings us to the next fundamental in this short introduction. When we think of the apostles as authorized messengers or commissioned spokesmen for God, we need to ask what message they were entrusted to proclaim. And so in verses 3 through 5, we find in summary form what Paul will flesh out in the coming chapters. What is that message? Find it in verse 3. Grace to you and peace. There is grace and peace for sinners. That's the essence or core of Paul's message. All religions have some recognition that there's a problem between man and their conception of God. And depending on how you view uh, your God and what you view the problem to be will determine what you think is the solution. And Paul tells us where the true solution for our sin problem comes. All other religions will point man back to himself. But the right place to look is away from ourselves and toward the God we are estranged from. And that focus becomes Paul's focal point in the rest of the, uh, in the second section of the letter as he consistently points us away from works because they are insufficient. Not only are they insufficient 
Any form of reliance on works represents a step backwards. It's a regression that contradicts and supplants the true solution. But how are we to find grace and peace with God when he is wrathful toward our sin and our works can't bring us to God? You might have noticed that verses 3 and 4 are one long sentence. And part of the reason for that is because when Paul comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, he comes to the solution. And he can't help but expand on what Christ has done for sinners. He gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. And this is our second fundamental The message the apostles proclaimed is the good news of grace and peace because of what Christ has done for you. He gave himself for your sins. Some people have a warped conception about what this means. They think that God the Father in some malicious or abusive way, forced a a little child to endure a horrific death on a cross. That's not the case at all. Jesus Christ is fully God. He is worthy of all the honor and all the glory that belongs to God. He is the Son, yes, but He is not a child. He willingly took on the role of substitute, He sovereignly chose to endure the shame of the cross. He was not forced against his will. There wasn't a tension in the Trinity. All three persons worked together to plan this work of redemption. And the Son willingly chose to be a sacrifice. We can see in the uh, Gospel of John, Jesus himself is declaring his intention to be a sacrifice. Jesus declared to be the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And again in John 10, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Christ has come and he willingly gave himself as a sacrifice for sin. Christ gave himself, and notice what he gave himself for. He gave himself for our sins. And this phrase harkens back to what we read in Isaiah 53, where the suffering servant is described. Multiple times in Isaiah 53, Christ, that servant, is shown to be taking on the sins of his people. In verse 8, he was stricken for the transgression of my people. In verse 11, and he shall bear their iniquities. Finally, in verse 12, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for transgressors. Brothers and sisters, Christ did not give himself to give you a good example of how to love sacrificially. He did not give himself to make you a better person, or to set you at neutral and see how you would turn out, what choices you would make. He didn't give himself hoping you would make a decision to choose him. 
Christ gave himself to be a sin-bearing, substitutionary sacrifice, taking the wrath of God that you deserve for your sins on your behalf. Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the God-hating world. And Christ's sin-bearing work is amazing in its greatness. It's not your sin in part, but your sin in whole. There is no sin that's not covered, no sin that escapes his atoning work. All your sins, from the greatest to the least, from the known public sins to the unknown private sins, from the sins that we knowingly commit to the sins that we commit in ignorance, even the original guilt and corruption we inherit from Adam is borne by Christ. There is no sin for which Christ did not give himself. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound of sin borne away. And Christ's purpose in giving himself for your sins comes next when Paul says, to deliver us from the present evil age. I won't dwell on this too long except to say that Christ has surely accomplished this aspect of his work. Those who are united to him by faith have already been raised up together with him in the heavenly places and transferred out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Sin is no longer your master if you're in Christ. You're not under the power of the evil one any longer. And as Paul will flesh out this fundamental in the coming chapters, that the gospel is what Christ has done for you, that means that all human works are excluded in your standing before God. Your standing before God is wholly dependent on Christ's work. This is in contrast to what Paul's opponents were teaching. These these Judaizers, those who sought to blend Christianity and Judaism, taught that it was necessary to trust in Jesus plus observe Jewish laws. And that's what happens today even still. There's still people who want to trust in Jesus plus. Trust in Jesus plus a second wave of, of understanding where you gain the spirit. Jesus Christ Plus, give your money to this cause and then you'll receive more blessing. Jesus Christ plus the sacerdotal system. Jesus Christ plus your good works or fill in the blank. From Paul's perspective, Jesus Christ plus a blending of Jesus and anything else produces a completely different religion. Where salvation is no longer by grace alone through faith alone. And Paul will back this up when he goes all the way back to Abraham to demonstrate that it's always been by faith alone. Salvation has always been by believing and trusting in what God has promised. Not only that, but continuation in covenant fidelity is also by faith. We don't just make an entrance into Um, And we're not just justified by faith. We're also sanctified by faith. We are preserved by faith in Christ. 
We don't keep ourselves and we don't preserve ourselves. That is the work of Christ where he works for us. You may uh, know people like this. Sometimes I'm like this at a a potluck or a, a buffet where you have a spread of food and you can pick and choose whatever you want. And you will look at those dishes and you'll say, that looks really good. I'll take a lot of that. Or I don't think that looks really good. I'm going to skip that altogether. We call them cherry pickers, right? And there's some people that cherry pick their religion. They find the things that they think are good, that they like, maybe that other people have told them are good. And they'll, they'll grab that and they'll try to make their own religion. But there's some things that you cannot cherry pick. They must be taken as a whole system. And Paul's argument in Galatians is that reliance on works of the law, reliance on ourselves to gain entrance into the kingdom of God or to remain in the kingdom of God is a part of a system that must be taken wholesale. You can't choose the parts you like, such as the type of society that would result from following Jewish law, And leave behind the curse of the law that is attached to that law. And in the same way, you can't take salvation by faith in Christ alone and add what you think is lacking. There are groups of people that think this. They worry that Paul's message of God's free grace towards sinners will result in loose living, will result in amoral Lifestyle where people just do whatever they want because, hey, God's grace covers my sin. And so they want more law preached to rein in the moral inclinations of, of people. And Paul's answer to that, which I think he also gave in the book of Romans, and if it's possible, would be more spirit. More spirit, to be led by the spirit, to be filled with the spirit, to not grieve the spirit. Because it's the spirit that enlivens our hearts and enables us to do what's good and pleasing before God. And brothers and sisters, the law is good. The law is good because it's a reflection of God's character. But we don't earn anything before God's eyes by keeping God's law. The law cannot do that for us. Christians have been called to freedom in Christ from the curse of the law, but that freedom is not a license to sin. And as Paul says, by no means. But I say, I, Paul, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Another element of Christ's work for us. Christ, the God-man who is endowed with the Spirit beyond measure, as he not only justifies you, he not only makes you right before God, he also gives you the power and the strength to do what is pleasing in his sight. He gives you his Spirit so that you, walking in the Spirit, become more and more conformed to the image of Christ, the man of the Spirit. And that takes place slowly, progressively, step by step. But if you have the Spirit, brothers and sisters, then you have the guarantee. You have the promise that Christ will complete in you that which he began. 
when he comes again. And so those brothers and sisters are the two fundamentals that I wanted to focus on from these verses. Who are you to listen to? Christ's own authorized spokesman, the apostles in the New Testament and the prophets in the Old. And what Christ has done for you. Christ has given himself for your sins. And you do not contribute anything to your salvation or your preservation. You are resting solely and completely on Christ and his work. And remembering these two fundamentals will help you. They will keep you from many of the errors that are around us. They will provide you with assurance when you are troubled or when you doubt because you don't think that you are good enough. And they will help you to grow in your faith as you build on this firm foundation of what Christ has given us. And so may God, by his spirit, impress these fundamentals on our hearts and cause us to grow in our understanding of what these fundamentals mean in our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Pray with me. Our God, we do thank you that you have given us your word. We're thankful that you have given us the fundamentals and that you call us back to them to remember what Christ has done, what provision he has given to us in his word. And we pray that you would guide our hearts and protect us and keep us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.